Welcome to Poetry Lectures, featuring talks by poets, scholars, and educators, presented by PoetryFoundation.org. In this program, we hear an informal conversation between poets John Ashbery and Ron Paget, remembering the life of Frank O'Hara. Frank O'Hara was born in 1926, served in the Navy in World War II, and after graduating from Harvard, spent most of his life in New York City, where he worked at the Museum of Modern Art. As you'll hear in this conversation, O'Hara had an active social life with many friends from the art, music, and theater worlds. His poems are casual and often read like entries in a diary, describing events in his everyday life. O'Hara's career was cut short when he died in a dune buggy accident on Long Island in 1966. The collected poems of Frank O'Hara was published in 1971. John Ashbery is recognized as one of the most important and influential American poets of the 20th century and has won nearly every major American award for poetry. He also graduated from Harvard and moved to New York around the same time as his friend O'Hara, but then moved on to Paris. He maintained an extensive correspondence with O'Hara, and you'll hear Ashbery read excerpts from several of these letters. Ron Paget moved to New York City from Tulsa in 1960 and, along with Joe Brainerd and Ted Berrigan, was part of what became known as the second-generation New York School Poets. He lives in the East Village. The conversation took place in April 2011, before a live audience at Harvard. It begins with John Ashbery, describing how he met Frank O'Hara in 1949, when they were both students at Harvard, and O'Hara was rooming with Edward Gorey. Well, I had seen uh, Frank around Harvard for quite a long time before we actually met. I was on the Harvard Advocate, and Frank submitted his poems and stories to us, and we published them, and I thought they were wonderful, and wished that I uh, knew him. I, I knew him by sight, and he, he didn't look particularly friendly, so I, I wouldn't have gone up to him and introduced myself. Well, I didn't, in fact. Uh, then I learned, finally, when I met him, that this was a completely false appearance that indeed he was very friendly and as Frank, as Ron said, after being with him for five minutes, you felt that you'd known him for years. I, I, he, he was rooming with Edward Gorey uh, that year. I, it was just um, a couple of months before I graduated in 1949. I think it was May. And uh, I, I went to a small party for, in, in Cambridge, at a Mandrake uh, bookstore, bookshop, which uh, there may still be one, but I think this was in another, another location. They were showing Edward Gorey's illustrations. So I, I went to it and Frank O'Hara was there and I was sort of eavesdropping on his conversation. And he was talking about a concert of a few nights before where they uh, played a work by Poulenc called Les Sécheresses, The Droughts. But I heard from him say, let's face it, Les Sécheresses is greater than Tristan. And I said, God, you sound just like me. <laughs> I was given to making that sort of absurd statement, and also we, we had uh, very similar voices and accents, although so then we, we began talking and, and immediately uh, became friends in, in five minutes. And then after that, we would see each other almost every day. I was uh, 
very interested in, in, in modern music. And this was still back in the days of the 78 RPM, and there wasn't that much on record. And Frank, uh, who actually composed music and played the piano quite well, uh, I, th I think he was ma majoring in music for a while. So I said, oh, I, I, I'm interested in your music. He said, well, I have this sonatina that lasts three seconds. So he, he had a piano rehearsal room uh, somewhere at Harvard where he would go with me and, and play his music and also music that I was curious about, such as music by Satie, which is, I, I don't think there was very much recorded at that time, and uh, Krennic, which I'd, I'd never heard anything by. Uh, I remember Frank playing a some of Hindemith's uh, 1922 suite, which has a number of movements, including a, I think there's a, a ragtime and a shimmy movement, <laughs> and, um, and, and a, a similar um, dance movement by Krennic, which, as he pointed out, sounded exactly like there's a long, long trail of winding. <laughs> uh, and uh, I discovered also that um, Frank knew about all these writers, most of whom I hadn't heard of, some of whom I had just barely heard of and was interested in. Among them, particularly Ronald Furbank, whom I had read about but thought he was probably too silly to uh, engage one's serious Harvard attention. And um, Samuel Beckett, this was years before Godot, and nobody had heard of Beckett. Oh, actually, I had read a novel of his in the 30s, so we were able to talk about that. And also, um, uh, Flan O'Brien, who's still not very well known. Ivy Coppin Burnett. Yeah. Yes, I'm not sure. Maybe it was I who discovered her. I think I'm, she was not. I think Gory also, actually, was a big fan of hers. Did I mention Jean Reese? No. Oh, yeah. She was somebody who was totally off the map, and I get this still more or less is. And he was uh, reading, uh, when I first knew him, her novel, uh, After Leaving Mr. McKenzie, about her romance with Ford Maddox Ford. Yeah. So you, you knew Frank just for a couple of weeks, though, right, at that point, before you went to New York? Is that true? No, a couple of months. Uh, I think it was like early in May, and I graduated in, in June. Mm -hmm. So it was, well, maybe six, six to eight weeks. Yeah. And then you went down to New York to uh, work at the library and do MA work? Or? Yes, I didn't have a, a job. I, I graduated from college without a job. Welcome to the club. <laughs> <laughs> and, and went to New York where Kenneth Coe, who had graduated the year before, was living in IHS. Stayed in his apartment that summer. He was away. I had applied to Harvard Graduate School, but they wouldn't let me in. <laughs> so I, and I was very disappointed. But I, I eventually did get accepted at uh, at Columbia. So that's um, how I ended up in New York. That fall, I started going to uh, to Columbia and got an MA. Let, let me back up just a little bit to Harvard, though. 
You know, Frank's friends, as I understand it, were, were Edward Gorey. Uh, it's one of his first, his roommate in his second and third years, I think. And then uh, Hal Fondren mm -hmm. and uh, Lion Phelps. And he seemed to have a sort of a, a coterie or a crowd of guys that he was really tight with. And uh, did you know those same people at all? Or I, I met them after I met him. I, did, I hadn't known them before. But before that, you didn't know them? No. Uh, who were your friends? Uh, Kenneth, particularly, he was the, the first poet I ever met, and uh, he we, we formed a mutual admiration society of two. And uh, Ken, uh, Kenneth was on the Advocate, and uh, I wanted very much to to be on the editorial board. But them, they had a very strict uh, policy against having gays on the Advocate at that time. Apparently, there had been some hideous scandal a few years before and they had shut down the advocate. So I felt I didn't have a chance, but since Kenneth didn't know I was gay, he immediately started uh, campaigning for me to get on the advocate. And when it was pointed out to him that uh, I was gay, he said, that's nonsense. <laughs> if, he, if he is, if he turns out to be, I'll, I'll resign from the advocate. <laughs> so I was eventually elected and then found out that half of the staff was in fact <laughs> the same <laughs> stripe. <laughs> uh, well, I had several other friends and... Uh, well, how about... Uh, Robert, well, actually, on the advocate, there was Robert Bly, Donald Hall. Yeah, I was going to ask you about yeah. that. There was Bly and Hall and, uh, and Creeley. Was he on the... Robert Creeley, was he on the... Or? Actually, he wasn't, I, I don't think, on the advocate. He had been... Uh, a couple of years before that at, uh, at Harvard, and uh, we were in a, uh, a class together. I think we, we had a, a poetry writing class. They, they hardly existed anywhere then, and I think least of all would they be at Harvard, but actually when I was a, a freshman, I took a poetry writing course with a poet named Theodore Spencer, who yeah. died very soon after, very young. Mm -hmm. And uh, Creeley and uh, novelist John Hawkes were okay. in the class, though we never we didn't get to know each other. And then another, I was in another class with Bob Creeley, whom I didn't meet until years later. When we were several, we were in alphabetical order, and I was A, and he was C, and in between us was a friend of his named Buddy Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, uh, yeah, well, Creeley was around, uh, and then other writers, uh, Adrian Rich was at Radcliffe, but I never met her. Mm -hmm. uh, Alison Lurie, I think, was in that same class at Radcliffe. I mentioned uh, by Paul. It's interesting how so many uh, writers that became so well-known were all in the same place at the same time, but, but didn't particularly know each other that well at the same time. Yeah. Unfortunately, we didn't know this was going to happen. So yes. <laughs> take notes or behave ourselves. <laughs> well, uh, I think among Frank's uh, teachers at Harvard were, uh, well, John Shardy, the poet, yeah. comes to mind immediately because I think he taught a poetry course when Frank was a senior and was very helpful to Frank mm -hmm. in a number of ways. Uh, did you ever study with Shardy as no. well? No. How about Renato Poggioli? I did have a course with him. Yes, and uh, symbolism, yeah. I believe. Yeah, yeah. Can't remember a single thing. 
That's the trouble with symbolism. <laughs> it's true of all the courses. <laughs> well, I was thinking about Frank's college career here and how in certain courses, I, I sort of looked at his transcript at one point. And he didn't do as well as I thought he would and everything. And then I remembered my own transcript and I had exactly the same pattern. <laughs> I always thought I was smart and I looked back at my grades and I, I did well in the courses I liked and the ones I didn't like, I just didn't go to class. And I found out that Frank had done the same thing. And, but that he had audited a number of courses too, uh, on the outside rather seriously. And, uh, he had a course, I think, with Albert Gerard. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Really liked, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. In, in, after Frank graduated, uh, I guess that was the spring of 1950. He sort of hung around here and, and uh, sort of, I think he worked at the Brattle Street Theater, I, I heard once that. I don't remember that. And that he was, he even appeared in, as a spear carrier in Julius Caesar, which John Carradine apparently had a role as well. Oh, oh another thing. Uh, I think Bill Berkson told me he once heard that, that you and Frank were in the, the Grillier bookshop one day. I don't know when. And, and it's a very small store, as you all know, I'm sure. And a, a third gentleman came in the store, and it was, it was Auden. And do you recall that happening? Uh, no, I remember meeting him on the street once or twice, and also going to reading, at least a couple, two readings that he gave at Harvard. I still have his collected poems, which he autographed on that occasion. And, um, and I also met him at a party given by Frank's friend George Montgomery. Oh, I forgot George who lived Montgomery. In, who was also a poet and a photographer and took the, some famous photographs of Frank. So I did meet Auden then, but I didn't really get to know him until, was I never got to know him, but I saw a little of him, a little more of him in New York. In New York, yeah. 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 And I wrote a kind of a thesis about him as an undergrad. He was my favorite poet for a long time, still. Um, his early poetry was very high on my list. Mm, mine too. And then Frank uh, apparently was encouraged by John Charty to apply to the writing program at the University of Michigan oh, at Harvard and recommended him very strongly for it. And Frank got, a, got admitted to the program and went out to Ann Arbor. I guess that would have been the fall of 50. Mm -hmm. and, uh, did you ever go out and visit him there? I... No, I, I, I would have liked to, but I, I wasn't able to. But uh, he came to, to New York a couple of times during that year and, and stayed with me, actually. At, I had a place on West uh, 12th Street and uh, gave a party for him uh, there and where he, I introduced him to Larry Rivers. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> and did anything interesting happen at that party? Yes, actually. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, the parlor, rack room of a parlor floor on a brownstone with very high ceilings and tall windows, and the drapes came down almost to the floor. And at one point, I happened to glance at the window and saw that there were these two pairs of shoes behind the drapes, including a pair of tennis shoes, which I knew were Frank's. And the others, as it turned out, were Larry Rivers. And the rest is herstory. <laughs> the rest is herstory. <laughs> well, uh, uh, while, um, while Frank was in, in, in Ann Arbor, apparently the Poets Theater had started up, and you were, 
somewhat active in that. I think they did uh, the first uh, pr uh, production of his play, Try Try. Yeah, and, and, uh, which I was, I was in. I think, didn't you play the role of John? I don't know that I was me, though. <laughs> no, no, I mean the character John. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't me, was it? I can't remember. No, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> and, uh, but did, did Frank come back for that production? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I remember coming up for it, and, and they, that was the same program, I think, where they did a short play of mine called Every Man, is that Every Man, yeah. Was sort of the same a, program? I think so. A mask? Was it a yeah. mask? Yeah. And Frank wrote the music for it. Yeah. I think it's uh, recently been discovered that there's a, a, a recording of that, which is the only recording I know of of any of his uh, music. You mean so, a music of his own composing? The music that he composed yeah. for yeah. my yeah. mask. Yeah. I think there's some, a recording, at least a couple on film, of his playing the piano, somebody else's compositions. Oh. I think on one of Rudy Burkhardt's films, I think there's oh, really? a background, the automotive story, or which uh, automotive story that Rudy made. Oh, I, I, I don't. Think, I think Frank's playing somebody. I can't remember. I've who seen it, was. but I don't remember. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, <clears throat> speaking of his his composition, musical composition, and his uh, piano playing, it seems that yeah, he was a very serious young musician up until he got to Harvard, and then he sort of quickly abandoned piano for writing. Uh, and yet he, was, he still retained a lot of his skills as a pianist. Uh, I remember once hearing that he was visiting the home of the, the duo pianist Golden Fisdale, uh, I guess in Bolton's Landing, and, and they're world-renowned pianists. And one of them got up one morning and heard piano being played downstairs. And, assumed it was his partner, and he came downstairs and it was Frank playing a very, very difficult piece, apparently. Huh. Uh, I, I can't remember which one it was, but it was astounding. I wondered wh why, why do you think, or did you hear Frank play the piano a lot after that? Because I, I didn't even know no. he played, as a matter of fact. It was, I, don't, I don't think at all, I can't remember hearing it at all. But he seemed to have been sort of good at it. And, yeah. I mean, he didn't have concert pretensions, but he was uh, apparently quite accomplished. Uh, I was just going to add something I, that I recalled from our, our first uh, knowing each other at, at Harvard that, that spring. There was an arts festival at Harvard with some very interesting stuff. Martha Graham uh, came and um, there was a premiere of a work by Schoenberg. Uh, the, uh, his trio for strings, a particularly uh, demanding and, and thorny work, and Frank loved the music of Schoenberg as well as frivolous stuff like Satie, and well not Satie isn't frivolous, but say Poulenc. And uh, that was one of the, uh, the things about him that I immediately had glommed onto, that he could love both of these things and be very serious about it and not serious at the same time. And after the concert, he, he got into an argument with some people in the music department at Harvard, which was very conservative about, you can't possibly like that shit, Schoenberg. I, the guy is totally insane. He's out of his mind. Frank defended Schoenberg very valiantly, but uh, sort of gives you an idea of the climate, of the aesthetic climate of then. So I guess after Frank finished at Michigan, he came back to, moved back to New York City? Yes, he, uh, 
came to New York. Actually, I was spending the, the summer in, at my parents' house or farm in upstate New York, and he rank and a friend of his came and stayed for a few days, and that was when, uh, as I said, we sounded very much alike. And one evening, I, I went out to the kitchen where my mother was doing the dishes, and I said, to, oh, can I help you do those? And without turning around, my mother said, no, Frank, go back to your friends. <laughs> so <laughs> he, he uh, came, got to New York before I came back and uh, found a job at the, at the Museum of Modern Art as, as his well-known uh, selling postcards, I think, was at first, and then gradually becoming more and more important there. I'm not sure, I think he might have started around Christmas time in 1951 when they needed extra help. I can't remember the exact year. Like that. I know when he came back from Michigan, at first he kind of floated around. I think he won the Hopwood Award there for poetry, and it carried a, a prize of $800, which at that yeah. time was a substantial amount of money for a young fellow. And when he came back, he, he sort of was able to cruise on that for a while. But, but uh, I know he got some sort of part-time jobs here and there. And one of them was as a typist for uh, a, a writer of uh, librettos and for operas and for Broadway named John Latouche, who's not very well known these days outside of that world. And uh, I just uh, wondered if you, did you, you must have known, met John Latouche roughly about the same time. Yeah, uh, that was that was a little later. I think that was in 1952. He also had a job for a while as, as an assistant for the photographer Cecil Beaton. Right. He, I don't. I think that was just before the MoMA job. I don't. The chronology is kind of mixed up in my yeah, I know. recollection. Well, I, I, in, in 1952, I know that at that point John Latouche was. Uh, who had come to New York as a young man to go to Columbia. I think he was 16 when he entered Columbia, and he was extremely precocious, obviously. He came from the South, from a very sort of lower middle class family, and he was very brilliant and quick and, and likable. And he immediately found his way to all these sort of celebrities, and soon he was collaborating with people like Duke Ellington and, and really doing these extraordinary things. And he also had quite an expansive social life, and he had a kind of salon, as a matter of fact, at one point. Yeah. And I remember Kenward Elmsley telling me that he once, he was at John Latouche's house, as a penthouse apartment, I believe, in 1952. Mm -hmm. And there was a poetry reading there being given, and, and I can't remember who was there, people like Truman Capote and whatever. But you and Frank read at that reading, and I remember it was Kenward's first experience, I think, with hearing your, mm -hmm. your work. And I remember he was very much mystified and taken by your work, and he was absolutely terrified by Frank's work. <laughs> I, I think Frank read a, a very a kind of a virulent poem called Hatred. It sort of shot yeah. forth all this bile and this incredible sort of Aimé Césaire-like eruptions. And, and, uh, do you remember John Latouche's salons, or did you go to many? I remember a, a Halloween party that he gave, where we uh, all had to wear some kind of costume. I don't remember what I, I wore. On another occasion, I remember meeting Sonia Orwell there, whom I was to get to know many years later in Paris. Uh, but I don't remember that particular uh, reading that you mentioned. Mm. 
Did you go to other salons there? And, uh, <laughs> or was that where you were one time? At, at John Latouche's? Yeah. I think, yes, several times, but I don't remember them very well. Really, it's quite a mixture of people. I mean, even Jack Kerouac came to one, and Leonard Bernstein, and of the, the mixture of sort of high and low culture mm -hmm. was quite uh, interesting, apparently. Especially for so young a fellow as, as Latouche was. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you about, um, at some point back then, apparently you and Frank appeared in a production uh, at the Living Theater of Picasso's play, Desire Caught by the Tail? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, we uh, got to know the Julian Beck and Judith Molina going to see their their living theater productions at the Cherry Lane Theater in the Village. Particularly a wonderful uh, production of a play by Gertrude Stein called Dr. Faustus Lights the Lights, which is one of the, I remember as one of the most marvelous theatrical experiences I've ever had. So I guess since we were around and uh, we were writing plays too and showed them to them and they ended up producing a, a short one-act play of mine called The Heroes. But before that, we were acted in uh, the Picasso play, and we played the, the role of two dogs. Uh, they were called bow-wows in the translation, which was not a particularly felicitous translation. <laughs> and um, my main memory, we, we, we wore a kind of one-piece pajama-like costume that, that fastened at the back of the neck with a safety pin. And there was one scene where one of the characters gets into a coffin with handles on it, and uh, Frank and I had the task of carrying him off stage. And uh, Frank was ahead of me, and as I picked up the coffin, my costume fell <laughs> off to my ankles. And I go, hurry up! <laughs> and he didn't know what had happened. And and sort of became annoyed at me for wanting it. So I said to myself, I'm just going to take my time. And so it took a tremendous time to get off stage when I was in this interesting condition. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we, we, we really followed their work very closely. They did plays by Paul Goodman also, who was a very good friend of theirs and also a, a Frank and I knew him very well. I was thinking about about 1953, I think it was, that uh, Frank and, and Kenneth Koch were writing these two long works. Each each was writing a long work, and they were, uh, Frank was writing a poem that became known as Second Avenue, and Kenneth was writing a, a long, even longer poem called When the Sun Tries to Go On. And uh, I've read about these and heard about these how they would call each other up on the phone every day and, and egg each other on and read <laughs> what they had done and at lunch read. So they were in this kind of friendly competition. And the, uh, the thing I didn't know until recently was that apparently at this same time you were writing a rather long poem and it was called something like Petroleum Lima <laughs> Beans. Oh, God. Uh, I guess I was, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't very long. And then, it wasn't? And uh, it hasn't uh, survived. I guess it maybe survived, and maybe in some archive that I'd rather not think about. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping that somebody would dig that out and publish it. <laughs> somebody will. I mean, especially with a title like "Petroleum Lima Beans." <laughs> 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 
over the years, uh, Kenneth Koch, whom I knew better than I knew Frank, uh, talked to me about how healthy it was for him to be in a, in a competition, a friendly competition, an inspiring friendly competition with Frank and with you, actually. And that knowing the, these friends that inspired him so much, and it made him want to be better, too. And Kenneth, as you may recall, was a very competitive person <laughs> anyway. Uh, I never saw that in Frank, actually, but, uh, and Kenneth was quite open about being, no, he loved being competitive, he thought it was healthy. I guess I'm better at concealing it than Kenneth was. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, he advertised it, yeah. But you're right about Frank, though. I, he, he, he was competitive, but I think it was just a question, really, of, of life force in him that sort of included competitiveness. Yeah. I never detected any envy in him whatsoever. And I've read most of his letters and you know, talked to a lot of friends mm -hmm. of his, but I never saw any traces of envy in him. Um, no, you're right. And uh, I want to ask you about another figure that's not talked about enough, uh, Jane Bowles. And I think that Frank knew her only slightly, it was my impression, but uh, do, you, do you know anything about his relationship with her? Or? No, actually, I... I uh, Met her in uh, many years later in, in Morocco when I was briefly in, in Tangier, and I had uh, discovered her her writing. The summer I came to New York and worked at the Brooklyn Public Library, I had a wonderful boss who also was a uh, fountain of information about fascinating little-known writers, and one of them was Jane Bowles, who was uh, actually a, had been a friend of his. He lived in the Famous house in Brooklyn Heights were Gang Bowles and Auden and Benjamin Britten and that's at the apartment that had the view of the Brooklyn Rose Lee the Brooklyn think. Bridge view yeah that Rudy Burkhardt took the photograph from that window of the oh I don't didn't know about that I think that's the same place yeah no I didn't know that what was the name of the man at the library hmm? the librarian what was his name Richard Elliot huh? and uh, he 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 was an interesting writer later when I edited a magazine called Locus Solus. I published some of his short stories, but I don't think he ever published anything elsewhere. Huh. Huh. So, so Frank didn't know James? No, so well. I then read her works, you know, what there is of them, the, the play, which I actually saw on Broadway, I think maybe with Frank. Uh, uh, in, in the, the summer, summer House, house yeah. with Mildred Dunnick, famous actress. And, um, and then the short stories that, uh, that she also wrote. I didn't know, though, that, that Frank knew her or had, had met her. Actually, I mean, it's quite likely since I believe Edwin Denby was a friend of hers and Paul Bowles. Edwin Denby did know Paul Bowles, yeah. 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 When Bowles was living in New York. And I think Edwin visited him in Morocco. I, I remember going to a party once where I think it was Edwin's birthday, maybe, and Jane Bowles and Paul Bowles were at it. There's another incident that I'm curious about. Frank was the victim of a holdup in 1954, I think, in his apartment building. And the, the assailant uh, apparently said something like, give me your money and your keys. It was in the, the, the stairwell of his apartment building, I mean, at least as I understand it. And Frank said something like, I don't have time for this. Go away or <laughs> <laughs> take a hike or something. And he started up the stairs, just ignoring the guy. And the guy apparently shot him yeah. in the hip uh, with a small caliber bullet and, and uh, sent Frank to the hospital. 
because he was bleeding. And uh, apparently people initially thought it was a stab wound, but they got to the hospital and found out that it was, uh, that it was not a puncture wound of that type. And I think the next day you and Kenneth Cope went to visit him? I, we did, yeah. Yeah. And can you tell me, I was curious about that visit. Well, what I remember is that, uh, I, actually that apartment, which was horrible, it was six floor walk up in a tenement building on, in a very nice neighborhood, East 49th between 1st and 2nd Avenue. Uh, and it was some, cost somebody $37 a month. It had two bedrooms, a living room, a kitchen and bathroom. And very nice views, actually, of the recently built UN building. But Frank was, when he, I, I think he was going downstairs and met these guys in the lobby, uh, young sort of hoodlums, and he was carrying the re reviews he had just written for Art News, which he was taking over to the Art News office, and that was what decided him not to, to give these up because he had just spent so much effort <laughs> writing them. He said, I was damned if I was going to let them have those. <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> That's right, it was one of his major sources of income was writing these little things, right? <laughs> yes. I think they were paying $2 a review, something like that? Um, yeah, they, but actually, by the time I worked for them, they were up to $4 for short reviews. Of. <laughs> uh, I wanted to read a little paragraph from a letter that Frank wrote to uh, Fairfield Porter in 1955. And this is Frank writing to Fairfield. Frank has just seen the, the film East of Eden based on John Steinbeck's novel. And, uh, With me, I think. I think so, yeah. And so he's writing to Fairfield and saying, I think one of the things about East of Eden is that I am very materialistic and John is very spiritual in our work especially. John's work is full of dreams and a kind of moral excellence and kind sentiments. Mine is full of objects for their own sake spleen, an ironically intimate observation, which may be truthfulness in the lyrical sense, but is more likely to be egotistical cynicism masquerading as honesty. <laughs> I'm sorry if you're bored by this, but sometimes I think that writing a poem is such a moral crisis, I get completely sick of the whole situation. Where Kenneth and Jimmy, James Schuyler, where Kenneth and Jimmy produce art, for instance, I often feel I just produce the byproduct of exhibitionism. <laughs> Uh, it seems to me he's being a little severe on himself. Yes. <laughs> but uh, does, this, does this ring a bell with you about the way he seemed to feel in his lower moments? Uh, well, I think he often strikes that note in his, in his letters. Um, I don't remember it so much in conversations, but uh, as it happened, I mainly knew him through letters because I... I left on a Fulbright a uh, few years after he arrived in, in uh, New York and ended up st staying 10 years in France. And uh, uh, therefore, I, w I had the enviable lot of getting letters from Frank whenever he wanted to write, which was always marvelous, like getting a huge box of candy in the mail. and. Uh, had I stayed in New York, I wouldn't have uh, gotten them, but uh, I would have gotten 
I would have spent more time with him. I think all in all, we only spent less than five years in any proximity to, to one another. Yeah. It seems to me the emotional proximity was, was a lot stronger. Yeah. I mean, much stronger. Yeah. I've seen a number of his letters to you. And yeah. They're fabulous. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I'm thinking, there's one, <clears throat> to follow up on that same theme, there's one I have here, I'm not going to read it, but I can get the date from it if I can find it. 1957, and, and he, he complains, at, not complains, but he talks about how he can't write anything, he's in a dry period, please John, send me some poems so I can read them, get inspired, and you know, he's sort of asking for your encouragement, uh, how he just can't write, it's very depressing, and then at a certain point he says, Oh, by the way, I'm inclu including a new poem of mine. <laughs> and then he goes on and complains about how he can't write it. And then at the end, he says, P.S. Oh, there's another one I'm going to do when I'm going to send you. So it was sort of, uh, I mean, it's, it's a sort of a modesty that, that, yeah. that comes through about saying, uh, yeah. I'm just an egotist showing off, and I don't have the kind of elevation that John has in his work. And I'm, I'm crawling around on the ground looking at objects. and. He did have an incredible modesty, which he shouldn't have. That was one of the things that I liked about him, was he was an interesting combination of being modest in that way, but also being completely self-assured at the same time. That's right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and uh, that, that nose of his that I guess had been broken in childhood yeah. made him look like a boxer. And uh, to me, yeah. uh, that's why I never wanted to approach him before we, I met him. Well, he was only like five foot four or something. <laughs> I mean, he's a little guy, but he's, he looked like, he's a little tough guy, actually, it seemed to me. Don't you think? And yeah. In a certain way, and not to be messed with. There's something he wrote, I can't remember where, saying, some, it was in a poem, I think, uh, some bully broke my nose, so I had to break his watch, or something <laughs> like that. I can't remember which poem that was. Uh, uh, anyway, at a certain point, Frank uh, got a Rockefeller Brothers grant to go come back here to Cambridge to work in the Poets' Theater as a kind of, I guess, poet in residence. Mm -hmm. And uh, although it wasn't a terribly productive period in terms of playwriting or anything, he did, uh, he, did uh, he produced a play of yours, I think, The, the Compromise. Yes. You, did you come back for that? Or no, I was, uh, that was my first year on my Fulbright, I think, and uh, Possibly second. So it's 56, I think. I think we have, what was or 58, 58, yeah. So, no, I never, I didn't see it, and um, I've never, it, it never has been staged anywhere else, although it, actually it, it was once done in France by our friend Serge Faucherot, put it on a really? school where he taught it oh. somewhere in the, the Vendee part of France, but I never. Or Rochefort, somewhere like that. Or. But uh, I'm sorry, I missed it. it some rather well-known people were in it, including Fanny Howe, as a, a little boy in the, the baby Jim character in the play. And her mother, of course, uh, Molly Howe, was the founder of the Poets Theater. Yeah. Well, Frank, I think, had a role in that play as well. He not only was the sort of producer, but I think he acted in it. I, at least I read that somewhere. I can't remember. And it's, it's funny because at various points, Frank, uh, in his letters and elsewhere, complains about acting. He really hates acting in plays, he hates being in plays, and yet he keeps popping up in them. <laughs> it's sort of like his attitude toward poetry readings that he gave. Um, he's always saying, I hate giving them, it's awful, but then if you start making a list of all the readings he ever gave, there's quite a number of them. And then he was willing to travel to Toronto and 
Buffalo and wherever. What did you think about him as a reader of poetry? I guess I liked it. I, he threw himself into it with his, to me, familiar accent, which I found it very easy to empathize with. But I don't have any, I don't really have too many memories of hearing Well, you were in France when he was doing a lot of these readings, I think. Uh, well, you know, the one that's in the, the educational TV series, uh, USA Poetry or Poetry mm -hmm. USA, and he's on the phone, uh, he's typing a poem, yeah. and then Jim Brody calls him on the phone, yeah. and he <laughs> keeps typing, and yeah. he's, he's writing a poem, talking on the phone, and making a documentary, and smoking all at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but there's another spot in there where he reads his poem, The Day Lady Died, and uh, he reads it in a very sort of, in his sassy but matter-of-fact way. And it's, I think, a very beautiful yeah. reading. And the readings I heard him give, I always loved. I loved his voice. I loved hearing him yeah. read it. I thought he was the best reader of his own work. But I've read numerous commentaries from critics, most of whom never heard him read, saying that his readings weren't very good and he was stiff. And I never saw any evidence of that at all. And I just wondered, am I, was I starstruck and unable to see he was being sort of stiff and formal? He never struck me that way at all. He seemed to be enjoying them. Yeah, uh, I'm yeah, trying to get you to agree with me on this. <laughs> I do. No, that, I, but I, I experienced his uh, multitasking a number of times myself. It was it was very annoying actually. We call up and usually when you saw him, there would be other friends around. You never really got to spend any time alone with him. And if you made an appointment for dinner, there would be some. Swedish curator and several old friends as well as yourself, and uh, every because everybody wanted to be with him. He was he was tremendously magnetic, and, and there was, he had just so much time to yeah. to give to people. But uh, I would be talking to him and gradually realizing that I didn't have his full attention, and then hear the typewriter in the background typing a poem, no doubt, and him also talking to his fellow employee, Rene New, in the office there. Oh, at the museum. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm, I'm going to jump ahead in something I was going to talk about. You talk about how, how hard it was sometimes to, to see Frank alone. And I'm thinking that especially in later years, uh, when he made so many friends, and he, he was being pulled at in a lot of different directions, it seemed like, I'm thinking particularly of something Kenneth Cope told me was that something similar to what you said. He said he, in later years he couldn't, you could never sort of talk directly to Frank because there was always somebody else there yeah. uh, making a claim on his attention. And, you know, Frank's kind of generosity toward people, that is to say, letting them be the way they are, was extraordinary, I think. And you know, Kenneth was much more selective in whom he chose to associate with. And, rather strict standards, actually. By Kenneth's standards, Frank's uh, willingness to entertain all kinds of people, some of whom were kind of difficult, let's say, uh, made it hard for Kenneth to be around him. Uh, I'm not going to name any names, but there were, <laughs> there were a number of people who were, who were difficult, but Frank seemed to have this wonderful tolerance for, yeah. the, for their, uh, their difficulties. And uh, it, it was sort of a source of consternation for some of his older friends, I think for Jane Freilicker and perhaps for you and certainly for Kenneth. Mm -hmm. And even a younger friend, Bill Berkson, found that although he was 
somebody who claimed Frank's attention at one point, and people got mad at him for that too. But but even he was sort of supplanted by others that um, made it difficult for him to to feel he was sort of seeing Frank and not dealing with these other people that were causing a lot of static in the atmosphere. You know, and. Uh, it didn't seem to bother Frank at no, all. No. <laughs> On the contrary. He was rolling with the punches, yes. you know. Um, John, did you want to, there's a letter that you brought along. Would you like to read that letter? Or? I actually went through my, my letters uh, from Frank, uh, which took me several hours to read. I had no idea there were so many of them. Uh, but of course, I lived away all that time. And there weren't as many from me to him, which I also reread. I think because maybe he didn't keep them. This one, I thought this was an interesting one because it's about a, a literary scandal in downtown New York involving people you all know about. This is dated March 16th, 1959. The only thing of any event was my recent reading at the Living Theater, Julian and Judith, on the corner of 6th and 14th Street. It was quite a disaster. After my recent friendly relations with Gregory Corso, which had led into all sorts of effusive protestations of mutual devotion and poesy, etc., ad infinitum, he suddenly decided drunkenly during the reading that he really wanted to butter up Jack Kerouac, who, alas, was there, and is by now an openly avowed object of my dislike, which is mutual. That is, he was before the reading, so I was quite angry with Gregory for going over to his side when he, G, was the one who kept begging me to read with him because he needed my support. Huh. <laughs> so the ensuing reading went something like this. First Gregory read some poems ending up with marriage, which excited him considerably. <laughs> not knowing whether the audience would like it or not, he prepared them in the style of a beat Richard Eberhardt by a prefatory speech about how he had fucked Jack's girlfriend when he came out of prison, but Jack shouldn't have been so mad at him because he had never had a girl before, and it was noble of him to take her. <laughs> then he read. Then he turned to me and said, you see, you have it easy because you're a faggot. Why don't you get married? You'd make a much better father than I would. Allen Ginsberg from the audience, shut up and let him read. Gregory, and you're a fucking faggot too, Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> Willard Moss, he was a poet who was the husband of Marie Mencken, the filmmaker. Why don't you marry Frank if you want, if you want to so much, Gregory? <laughs> Jack Kerouac, let me read. I want to read from Dr. Sachs, his new novel. Gregory, no, it's our reading. You stay out of it. <laughs> So I read a few things ending with the ode to Mike Goldberg. Gregory said, that's beautiful, and everyone seemed to be interested when Jack Kay said, you're ruining American poetry, O'Hara. Me, that's more than you ever did for it. <laughs> <laughs> intermission. <laughs> During intermission, a long emotional scene between me and Gregory about whether I was withdrawing from him, would I stick by him, etc. I reminded him that he'd also prefaced my reading by the remark, he's sort of she-she sometimes, but when he feels something, it's terrific. <laughs> Enter Jack Kerouac. Gregory starts shouting, you're taking my Frank from me. From me. You put me in a bad light. Jack repeats about ruining, etc. 
Gregory remarks that he shouldn't put my work down, that Ode to M.G. is beautiful. Jack says, I don't like it. I say, Jack, I've known you for several years and I never liked you, and I don't care whether you like me or it or anything else. <laughs> Jack says, I'm sick and tired of you and your 6,000 pricks. <laughs> Intervention on the part of stage manager and Julian, <laughs> who have been running in and out during this. Jack lies on the floor. We go back. Gregory starts in again, but reads bomb beautifully. Jack, however, has been making remarks, so I said, all right, Jack, you read for a while if you want to so badly, and leave the sage. Gregory asks me to stay, then Jack does. I decline to listen to him. Then Jack starts reading, and the audience can't hear him, and starts muttering and asking for me to read. Finally, Julian persuades me to return. I start at someone's request to read a new poem, The Unfinished, which has Gregory in it, but after two lines, Jack interrupts again. So I say, I just don't feel like reading to the audience. This may seem uninteresting, but it's no more uninteresting than Jack Kerouac wanting to read and leave. Actually, I was also damned if I was going to read a poem that put Gregory in a flattering light after this betrayal, which I still think it was, and for the liking of Jack Kerouac of all people. All through this, Alan and Peter were trying to call off either one or both, but couldn't. It really was disgusting, though I didn't mind not reading since I never particularly enjoy doing it, as you know. Since then, Gregory has called to apologize, but I haven't seen him, though I did talk to Alan about it and expressed my views. Actually, everyone has a different version, but this is the way I remember it. Morty Feldman had a cute remark. He said, I wanted to beat up both of them, but I got confused because I began thinking it was middle class of me. <laughs> if only Mike Goldberg had been here, he never feels middle class. <laughs> also during this all, Gregory kept calling into the audience to Bill de Kooning. Now wasn't that beautiful, de Kooning? Aren't you going to give me a painting? Goldberg and Rivers did. Finally, Bill said, I'll give you a reproduction. <laughs> It really was quite a witty evening, all in all. <laughs> what was rather disgusting was the way Gregory prefaced his poems with explanations such as, you know, I came from the Lower East Side, and it really is remarkable that I'm up here doing this instead of being in jail or something. Or, this is about a dear friend of mine, Bunny Lang, who was also a dear friend of Frank's, and she first took me to Cambridge, where I started getting educated and everything. So when she died, I wrote, now, how do you like that? His friends adored this tranche de vie approach. Granted that I do love Gregory's poems, it suddenly seemed as if he felt about them the way Jane Freilicher does, that they're just Clifford Odette's narrations on what everyone already knows. I think they're better than that, but does Gregory? <laughs> and there's a, a, a footnote to that. Well, actually, this is from a letter that I then wrote him briefly. Since Gregory Corso and his troglodytes consider you so frivolous surrealist to judge from your hair-raising account of your reading with him, they must class me on a level with Noel Coward. <laughs> Why don't we band together and be something? I'm seriously thinking of starting a small magazine when I come home, if it doesn't cost much, in which we could air our views freely and not publish Michael Rumacher, etc. Another later letter from Frank. 
This is October 29th, 1959, about six months later. Frank writing to you? Yeah. Yeah. Last night after Vincent and I went to go see Fantuti, Joe showed me a lot of haikus that Jack, Alan, and Peter had left, having dropped in to see us unexpectedly. Jack's formal apology for his rudeness was one of them, which explained that he was jealous of Gregory liking my poetry so much, and then he told Joe that I was the best poet in American after Gregory and Alan, which is news of a rather obvious kind. I wonder how long he thinks this little honeymoon is going to last. Probably until we see each other again and then, boom, love Frank. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That was John Ashbury reading a letter written to him by Frank O'Hara. Ashbury was speaking with Ron Paget at Asquith Lecture Hall, Harvard University, on April 5, 2011. The recording of this program is used by permission of Ron Paget and John Ashbury and courtesy of the Woodbury Poetry Room, Harvard College Library. John Ashbury has written dozens of books of poetry and his work appears in many anthologies and collections. Ron Paget is the author of over 20 collections of poetry, including You Never Know, How to Be Perfect, and How Long. You can read more about Frank O'Hara, John Ashbury, Ron Paget, and some other poems at poetryfoundation.org. Also at the Poetry Foundation website, you'll find many other articles by and about poets, an online archive of more than 10,000 poems, the Poetry Learning Lab, the Harriet Blog about poetry, the complete back issues of Poetry Magazine, and other audio programs to download. I'm Ed Herman. Thanks for listening to Poetry Lectures from poetryfoundation.org.